Uh, in your confessions, you can turn to chapter 4. Uh, if you need, does anybody need a confession? We can pass the, the blue basket around. Everybody's good. Uh, chapter 4. <clears throat> the chapter is, of course, as you see, of creation. It's a small chapter, but as is often the case in small chapters, there's a lot packed into, in this case, these three paragraphs. Uh, so I'll read paragraphs 1, 2, and 3, and then we'll look at a study of creation. In the beginning, it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. After God had made all other creatures, He created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto that life to God for which they were created, being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. Besides the law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which whilst they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. Amen. So once again, a very short chapter, but uh, there's much theology wrapped up in it. And it's, uh, um, as is the case with a lot of chapters, with every chapter, uh, but there is a connectivity, obviously, b- between what preceded and what follows. And there's a, um, there is a specific order to which these doctrines are placed in the chapters and how they set up subsequent chapters that, that follow them. But um, uh, one of the things that we see here is that this now transitions from uh, what theologians call the works ad intra, or the intrinsic or e- internal works of God, to those things which are now external or ad extra. So God himself, and then the decree, chapters 2 and 3, those things that are inside or internal or intrinsic to God. And then now in chapter 4, the transition is to those things extrinsic or to God's essence productive outwardly. And that begins with the doctrine of creation. This pertains to the execution of the decrees, chapter 3, outside of God. So creation, providence, and redemption. And these extrinsic works of God or the external works of God uh, have been historically categorized in a twofold manner. First, the works of nature, and second, the works of grace. Now, when we say the works of nature, we're not talking about Mother Nature, um, you know, that uh, pagan idea. We're talking about God creating and upholding all things that He creates. So those works that pertain to nature or the natural works... Secondly, it is the works of grace. So those supernatural works of God that pertain to redemption. Uh, so a twofold approach, and that's how the confession actually unfolds. The next chapters are those works of nature, creation here and then providence. And then what follows are the works of grace, those redemptive chapters that flow uh, from chapter 6 all the way through essentially uh, to, to, the end of the, uh, uh, to the end of the confession, but perhaps more pointedly uh, to that transi- transition from 21 uh, to 22. So, um, again, this now moves us from the intrinsic works of God's to those things extrinsic. And it's good to frame our minds because when we talk about creation, we talk about the clear and obvious evidence that there is a God who has made all things. Um, when you know, uh, the, the atheist or the agnostic may point his finger uh, at the Christian and say, where's the evidence of a God? And, and we point to everything around us. Uh, we point to the heavens and to the earth and to the fact that there are facts. We point, uh, we point to, to everything around us. Everything that is not God is evidence that there is a God in high heaven who has created all things that exist. This is uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, to frame our thoughts as we move into a, a structured study of, of, the paragraph, uh, of these paragraphs. For what is it which ordered things in heaven and things in earth, and those things which pass through air 
and those which live in water, or rather the things which were before these, heaven and earth, air and water? Who mingled these and who distributed them? What is it that each has in common with the other and their mutual dependence and agreement? For I commend the man, though he was a heathen, who said, What gave movement to these and drives their ceaseless and unhindered motion? Is it not the artificer of them who implanted reason in them all, in accordance with which the universe is moved and controlled? Is it not he who made them and brought them into being? For we cannot attribute such a power to the accidental. For suppose that its existence is accidental. To what will you let us ascribe its order? And if you like, we will grant you this. To what then will you ascribe its preservation and protection in accordance with the terms of its first creation? Do these belong to the accidental or to something else? Surely not to the accidental. And what can this, uh, excuse me, and what can this something else be but God? Thus reason that proceeds from God that is implanted in all from the beginning and is the first law in us and is bound up in all leads us up to God through visible things. So this is very, very important. God, having created us, as we'll see in His very image, has given us reason such that when we cast our eyes upon all things visible, it leads us up to God through those visible things. And that's why the psalmist, when he writes Psalm 19, um, as it is, of course, Christological in its primacy, nevertheless, it sets forth, forth the fact that the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows His handiwork. Day after day utter speech, night after night reveals knowledge, um, and there is nowhere where their voice is not heard. And so, as the creature looks upon creation, he is to be drawn up to God through those things visible. The first thing that we want to look at is what is creation. The second thing is God and creation. And then thirdly, man and creation. And then lastly, man, creation, and covenant. So all those things are captured here in these, these uh, three short paragraphs. So first off, what is creation? We'll get back to our confession in a moment, but a helpful, helpful answer to the question, what is creation, uh, can be seen in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question number nine, what is the work of creation? The answer is the work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. It's a very good summary of what is creation. Again, one more time, the work of creation is God's making all things out of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. Now, the larger catechism has a very similar answer to that, maybe just a little bit expanded, but not much. And then it elaborates on honing in on angels and men peculiarly. Uh, it doesn't spend time on creatures. It doesn't spend time on, on the rolling spheres. It doesn't spend time on stars and planets and those other things. And I think the reason is because creation itself, the very purpose for creation, is the manifestation of the glory of God in the redemption of his elect through Jesus Christ. That's why the larger catechism moves from creation generally, then specifically and peculiarly to angels and men and not elaborating on, on everything else because it, it doesn't need to. Simply, creation is everything that is not God. So if we were to ask the question, uh, another question, or the same question, what is creation? It is everything not God. Um, so time and space, for example, are not coextensive with God. Matter is not coextensive with God. In other words, um, time and space are not eternal. Matter is not eternal. We, we reject the pagan notions that God was existing from all time alongside of matter um, and that you know he whatever god this is made all things from out of pre-existent eternal matter um, and of course time and space are, are not eternal and we'll look at that uh, in a moment so everything that is not god that includes time that includes space that includes matter that includes again all things that are not god uh, Richard Barcelos gives a helpful paraphrase of Genesis 1. This is a quote from his book, uh, Trinity and Creation. A theological paraphrase of Genesis... Remember Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, um, etc. 
So Barcelos writes, a theological paraphrase of Genesis 1.1 could read as follows, in the beginning, all that is in God brought forth that which is not God. Um, that's a helpful theological paraphrase of Genesis 1.1. Um, we, we, we don't want to use the language was, but um, we will anyway because that's all that we have as creatures. But before creation, all that was was God. Um, so there is nothing existent or eternally existent, or we say coextensive with God, even though God doesn't have extension, being immense, eternal, a most pure spirit. But nevertheless, uh, a, good, uh, a good paraphrase is, in the beginning, all that is in God brought forth that which is not God. Our confession, very similar to the Westminster Confession of Faith, and in essence, following, uh, following the verbiage in, in, uh, chronologically here, uh, we have a definition of creation in paragraph 1. We see there, create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible in the space of six days, and all very good. Um, so we'll, we'll look at this, uh, we'll look at this uh, create or make language in a moment because there's something very important there. They're, they're not just synonymous terms that the confessionals, uh, that the uh, confessionalists are, are duplicating here. They're not synonymous, and we'll look at that in a moment. But very simply, uh, what is creation? It is God's making of all things not God in the space of six days and all very good. Now, important here is God and creation, which is our, our second point. So, God and creation. We want to notice first here divine eternality relative to creation. Because when we get to the topic of creation, where we are now, um, it's, uh, it's common for people to, to talk about, okay, or, or to sort of approach creation in such a way that God now moves from having not created to having now created. Um, and if that's the case, then there would be change in God. And if that's the case, in some way or other, God would be partially creature. If he moves and he changes by virtue of creation to something that he was not before, then we're worshiping the creature and not the creator to a certain degree. So divine eternality relative to creation. When creation came to be, uh, not when God moved from having not created to having now created. That's when we, with the language of in the beginning... We need to understand here that God didn't move now to enter into time and then now creates. Uh, so this language of in the beginning is when creation came to be, not when God moved from having not created to having now created. So first off, this an explanation of in the beginning. It doesn't mean that God entered into time. Remember in chapter 2, one of the very attributes or very perfections of God is that He is immutable, immense, eternal. And that language of eternal means that He is not bound by time. If immensity is, and it is, the reality that God is not bound by space, eternality, or the fact that He is eternal, or atemporal, is that He is not bound by time. There is no past, present, or future with God, God does not have a past, a present, or a future. He is immense. He is eternal. And so, in the beginning doesn't mean that God entered into time or that God created time and then entered into it to create. Um, we, need to, we need to jettison that from our contemplations of God and creation. It's not the case that He entered into time. And it's not the case that he created time and then entered into it in order to create. It certainly isn't the case, and we've already noted this, that time is eternal along with God, such that even before he created, he was somehow captured by time or subject to time. Um, eternality for God doesn't mean the succession of moments. It doesn't mean that he has the eternal succession of moments that he rolls along with the tick-tocking of some eternal clock, but rather it means that God is not bound by time in the very least. Boethius wrote, with regards to eternity in God, eternity then is the whole simultaneous 
and perfect possession of boundless life. I just want to read that one more time. Eternity then, this is as it pertains to God, is the whole simultaneous and perfect possession of boundless life. This is, what our, this is something that ought to cause our hearts to worship, that God is marked by boundless life. We don't want a God that is bound. We don't want a God that is bound by space. Remember, He is immense. He is not bound by space. The pagan gods are bound by space. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. He, remember the, the, in the dedication, uh, Solomon's dedication of the temple, God cannot be contained by things made by human hands. He fills the heavens and the earth. The heavens of the heavens cannot even contain Him. And, of course, He cannot be bound by time. There are no succession of moments in God. He does not move from yesterday to today and then to tomorrow. In God, we have the, the case that we have the whole simultaneous and perfect possession of boundless life. On this idea that, remember, in the beginning it pleased God to create or make, uh, on the point of divine eter eternality relative to creation, William Ames wrote, with regards to this idea that God didn't move from first having not created to then now having created, properly, active power does not agree to God as if in respect to Himself He were first idle and afterward He put Himself forth to act. For God is a most pure act. So God, God is never idle. He didn't in creation move from a point of having been idle. As he writes here, uh, as if in respect to himself he were first idle and afterward he put himself forth to act, but much rather God is a most pure act. Francis Turretin clarifies it this way, there is no change made in God by creation, nor is any new perfection added to him because it is an external and transient act which is from God but not in him. It is made without any motion and new determination. No new will enters into him, but only a new external work proceeds from his eternal, efficacious, and omnipotent will. Nor ought any perfection to be added to him on that account. Hence, whatever change was made by the creation was made in the creatures, passing from non-existence to being, and not in God himself creating. By the same practical volition which he had from eternity, he created the world in time, produced it actually in the beginning of time. So any change that we talk about with respect to creation is in the creature and not in God. For if there is change in God by virtue of creation, then we are worshiping in some part creature and not the Creator. Because Creator cannot go from having once been to having now been. So God remains the eternal creator of time, to use a, a James Dolezal phrase. In fact, jo, uh, James writes, with respect to comparing God's immensity, remember that God is not bound by space, comparing that to God's uh, awe temporality or eternity relative to creation. He writes, God's immensity, which is in His infinity, considered in regard to space, can serve as a helpful parallel in thinking about God's eternity. For as He is not bounded by space, so neither by time. Just as God is not spatial in His presence to space, so He is not temporal in His presence to time. Now why are we talking about all this and why are we you know, mounting some theological terms one upon the other? It's so that we can properly understand our God and know Him. And, and cast away from ourselves any notions of idolatry, uh, any, any inklings of a God who is closer to pagan construction than to the one who has revealed himself in Holy Scripture. So in the beginning does not mean that God somehow entered into time because he is immutable, immense, eternal. Moving on then to creation and the work of the undivided trinity. Notice that creation is the work of the undivided trinity. Chapter uh, 4, paragraph 1. In the beginning it pleased God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And notice, for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power. So we see there a, 
a reiteration of the unity and the trinity of paragraph, uh, paragraphs 1 to 3 of chapter 2. There is this one and only living and true God who eternally exists as God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this unity is uh, uh, punctuated by the term God and then the word His. And the Trinity is, of course, clear by, uh, by naming here Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Coming back to creation, though, creation is the work of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is the undivided work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The work of creation, just like any other work external to God, um, is not uh, divided up or cut up amongst the three persons. It's not the case, just as it isn't the case that the divine essence is 33 and a third percent Father, 33 and a third percent Son, and 33 and a third percent Spirit, so too the work of creation is not 33 and a third percent Father, etc. This is the undivided work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is not, as we carry along this train of thought, it wasn't simply and alone the work of the Father, and then the Son comes along and His work is confined to redemption, and then the Holy Spirit comes along and His work is confined to the application of redemption. That is, that is madness, theologically. It's the case that the undivided Trinity in its undivided essence works undividedly in all things that it does. And so we see here in creation, it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to create or make. Uh, So God works here, the triune God works here in an undivided fashion. All the external works of God are the one work, the undivided work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So creation is the work of the undivided Trinity. And then notice the purpose of creation. In the beginning, it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, note, for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. It's a very, very, um, very important statement that isn't just the mounting of words upon each other. In fact, that very phrase, power, wisdom, and goodness, recurs multiple, multiple times throughout the history of theological discourse from the early well from the apostles all the way through to our to our modern time this language as it pertains to creation and the divine will power wisdom and goodness is something that recurs time and again just some examples here with regards to that language this is manton thomas manton Uh, look upward downward within thee without thee What dost thou see, hear, and feel but the products and effects of an eternal power, wisdom, and goodness? Thou canst not open thine eyes, but the heavens are ready to say to thy conscience, Man, there is a God, an infinite eternal being, who made us and all things else. This is Samuel Hopkins with similar language. God was pleased to create innumerable hosts of intelligent beings with strong powers of mind and large capacities to be spectators of his works and attend to the numerous worlds and creatures as they rose into existence and order and behold and admire infinite power, wisdom, and goodness manifested herein and rejoice, adore, and praise the Creator. And the more we attend to the creation and examine the great works, the sun, moon, and stars, or this globe on which we live, and the various ranks of creatures which come under our notice, the more clear and striking will be the evidence of design and of the power, wisdom, and goodness of the Creator. So the purpose of creation here, as the confession says, is for the manifestation of the glory of His, that is the triune God's, eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. There is a purpose to creation. In fact, as we move along, there is that we might say that general uh, purpose to creation, and then there is a specific and pointed purpose to creation, which is the execution of the covenant of redemption by the Son of God in time and in history. 
so the redemption of God's elect, we will simply say the gospel, the salvation of God's people is that ultimate and specific purpose for creation. In back of that is this larger scope, which is the manifestation of the glory of God's eternal wisdom, uh, eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. Calvin writes similarly a shorter quote. The inspired writer, this is I believe his comments on Psalm 19, the inspired writer shows for what purpose he has celebrated in the preceding part of the psalm the power, wisdom, and goodness of God in His works. Namely, to stir up men to praise Him. And if nothing else this morning, that's what the purpose of this study is, is to stir us up to praise God. Because a reflection upon this great triune God and a reflection upon His power, wisdom, and goodness in creation is to draw our Christian hearts to praise that same, uh, that same God. So the purpose of creation is for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power wisdom and goodness and it's a it's a wonderful threefold expression of the purpose of creation that matches with the trinity of our god we have a a nice threeness there power wisdom goodness um, because our god is father son and holy spirit Um, fourthly under god and creation we want to note the act of creation So notice the language for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible in the space of six days and all very good. We want to we want to make a note of this language of create or make. I noted at the beginning that this isn't the confessionalists simply repeating a synonymous term. They're not just saying create or make as if make is to be here understood as synonymous to creation, uh, to create. And we'll, we'll, we'll expand on this. In the, in, the Westminster short, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I believe also in the Savoy Declaration, those two confessions that preceded ours and that ours is built upon, um, they had here the clause to create out of nothing. Um, our confession removes out of nothing and adds or make the world. Um, and so what is the reason for this? Well, of course, our, our theological forebears are not denying that God created, you've heard the term ex nihilo, that he created out of nothing, because that's, that's most certainly true. But the term create here captures that. With the, with the, the doctrine of God in the background, and the doctrine of the decree of God in the background, create can mean nothing more than that the God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, without nothing in eternal existence, created out of nothing all things, whether visible or invisible. So the word create captures that ex nihilo um, reality of creation, that God created out of nothing. And then the word make, the term make here, that the confessionalists added, pertains to the fact that God made some things out of matter that he had previously created. For example, Adam. Adam was created out of the dust of the earth. Adam was not created out of nothing. Now, we would want to qualify that by saying that in a sense, Adam was created out of nothing in the fact that we're, we're rejecting the idea that God made things from preexistent eternal matter. But God creates out of nothing all things, and then from those all things, He creates other things. For example, Adam, again, created from out of the dust of the earth, um, and as well, Eve created, made. uh, We we would want to keep this language of make or made. Eve was made from the rib of Adam. Turretin speaks this way, creation may, uh, may be either first and immediate, which is simply ex nihilo, or secondary and mediate, which is made indeed from some matter. So this is why the confessionalists did this here, and it's more theologically precise, um, in fact. Uh, you know, we have the advantage of time, the Baptists did, because they wrote this after the other two. We'd want to think that the other two would look at them and say, oh yeah, good addition. Um, so to create or make the world in the space of six days Um, and all very good. 
So that's why we have creator make. Again, not synonymous terms, but theologically distinct terms because of the actual narrative that we have in the Bible of God creating from out of nothing and then creating some things from those things created. Um, if there's any questions on that afterwards, but hopefully, hopefully that's clear. Just th- simply think, Adam created from the dust of the earth. Eve, we'll say Adam made from the dust of the earth and Eve made from the rib of Adam. So, created or, or make... Now, we want to just note here the divine power in creation. You know, what, what an amazing thing this, this must have been. And, and to wrap our minds around the power behind the creation of all things, visible and invisible, um, it, it's, it's mind-blowing. We, we won't be able to wrap our heads around the, the, the divine power behind the creation of all things. When we... When we cast our eyes upon you know, the expanse of the heavens, when we cast our eyes on the sun and the, the moon and the stars, when we can you know, look at the, the immensity of the, that's the immensity, uh, they are bound by space, the mountains, but when we can look at the sheer size of the mountains um, uh, and just think that, that you know, that's just an, an infinitesimal speck in the creation itself, and yet it's so large. You think of the power just to make a mountain, and then our mind should expand beyond that and think of the universe and all things therein. What an amazing thing we have in our God who create or made uh, all things visible and invisible in the space of six days and all very good. What, what an amazing power. And I believe our minds are then to be drawn from a contemplation of the power of God in creation to the fact that by that same power in creation, He brought us forth from deadness to life to behold the face of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, that's the language of the, language of the Apostle Paul there. We, we, um, our, our redemption is wrought by the same power that was exercised in creation. Creation moves us to praise God, but it also moves us to have our minds uh, focused upon redemption, um, which was wrought by that same divine power, causing us to, to lay hold with eyes of faith upon the face of Christ. So the act of creation, fifthly under God and creation, the scope of creation. Notice the language, uh, create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible in the space of six days and all very good. So um, all things therein, whether visible or invisible, the scope of creation. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. The scope of creation is that he made all things. This language of the world, um, appreciate it. This language of the world doesn't simply mean earth. It means the cosmos, the universe. Um, this is something that you'll see in the, in the, in the uh, theological tradition. Uh, at the point of creation, whenever, uh, whenever the term the world is used, it doesn't simply mean earth. It means uh, everything. Uh, the heavens uh, and the earth, all things therein, whether visible or invisible. So um, when you see the world in these contexts, it means everything the cosmos the universe and of course we don't want to we will in a sense but um, the language is simple Uh, we will skip by uh, it quickly but we want to note here in the space of six days and these are six literal days there of course has been diversity within within the early church within orthodox uh, treatments of the trinity that had thought uh, among the early church and perhaps even some scholastics but definitely in the early church where they thought where they thought that this language was uh was more um they would say angelically reflective of a singular mo- a moment in time where god created all things out of nothing in other words it was instantaneous um but we hold with the uh, the solid tradition that these six days are six literal uh, 24-hour periods the confessionalists did in the space of six days means exactly that in the space of six literal days and all very good so that's god and creation next off we want to look at man and creation so man and creation the first thing we notice here is the binary nature of man's creation after God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female. So the binary nature of God's creation, specifically as it pertains to man, it is the case that he created man 
male and female. We know the Genesis account, but you can turn to the book of Matthew with me. Because here, the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 19 upholds the Genesis account um, upholds the Genesis account as that which reflects the proper reality concerning the creation of man. Notice in Matthew 19 at verse 1. In fact, not only does he uphold it, but in upholding it, he's quoting Genesis. So this is Matthew 19.1. Now it came to pass... When Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So you see here Christ upholding the binary nature of man's creation that God in the beginning created man male and female. And so, of course, Christians uphold this clear reality that there are two genders, male and female, um, and that God created them such. And notice that He created them with reasonable and immortal souls, which brings us to man's distinction from and dignity relative to all other creatures. So this is the second point under man and creation. Man's distinction from and dignity relative to all other creatures. We see this first in the language of the confession with reasonable and immortal souls. Um, It is only man... Well, it doesn't, it doesn't say here, it, it's not talking about angels here, so we can set that aside for a moment. But with respect to man here, with reasonable and immortal souls. Animals don't have reasonable souls, and they don't have immortal souls. In fact, they don't have souls. Um, so we need to note this in man's distinction and dignity relative to all other creatures. The first point is that we have reasonable and immortal souls. Remember at that point in creation, the creation account where God breathes His Spirit into man? Um, Animals did not receive that divine breathing, if you will. Um, It was only man that received that. And that is, theologians have recognized something there with respect to the soul, with, with respect to the image of God. And so, our dignity, our distinction relative to all Uh, All other creatures is seen first there with reasonable and immortal souls. Um, This is uh, Augustine with regards to uh, with regards to this language. Well, actually, we'll 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 wait for the Augustine quote in a moment because we want to move on a little bit here. Uh, Rendering them fit unto that life to which uh, to God for which they were created. So, um, in order to render God. In communion with God, the service and the worship that is due unto him, a creature, man, needed to have reasonable and immortal souls. And notice the language here, being made, man, male and female, were made after the image of God. So, remember the Genesis account, let us make man in our image. Of course, language with respect to Trinitarian doctrine, that our and that us doesn't have to do with God commiserating with angels or some sort of, uh, some sort of what do they call it, uh, you know, divine the counsel, thank you, the divine counsel theory, where, where God, you know, takes into, uh, brings to himself the counsel of angels in order to discuss the creation of man. That let us, and that let us make man in that our image has to do with Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But remember that language, God makes man in his own image. Well, the confession elaborates upon what that image is. What is the image of God? The image of God is in knowledge, or the image of God we could say is, knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. So, man being created in the image of God is created with reasonable and immortal souls, with knowledge, righteousness, and and true holiness. That is the image of God. And man bears it, other creatures do not. That is, we're not speaking, we're, we're leaving angels aside for a moment. Angels are, uh, are unique and different. They do have reasonable uh, and immortal souls. 
Uh, they are spirit, um, but we're just talking about man relative to all other earthly creatures. Um, so the image of God is knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. Um, and as we'll see as we move along in our confession studies, that image, of course, is gravely affected by man's fall into sin. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll get to that when we get there, though. But our distinction from the creatures has to do with reasonable immortal souls and also the image of God that, uh, by which we were made. Knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. And notice as well this additional clause, having the law of God written in their hearts. Um, there are two ways in which the law of God can be written upon or is written upon man's heart. The first way is creationally or creatively. So by virtue of man's creation, we have the law of God written upon our hearts. Prior to the fall, uh, uh, prior to the fall, it bore a different manifestation, and you will, as the language will go on here to say, and as we'll see when we move on to chapter 6, what actually is going on with respect to that image, with respect to sin, and with respect to man's approach to the law of God as it is written upon the heart. But nevertheless, by virtue of creation, man has the law of God written upon his heart. Uh, you know, the, the, um, the man knows um, to a certain degree and in a certain sense upon his conscience when he has violated the law of God. It doesn't bear the same weight, of course, and the same severity and the same impact and effects as it does upon one who has been made alive in Christ by amazing grace. But nevertheless, man, I, I mean, you know, Jim's talked about it before. Why do, why do thieves uh, seek the cover of night in order to break into a house? Well, they, they know thievery is wrong. They're trying to hide themselves. You know, why do criminals, why do criminals seek to... Uh, to hide their, you know, to hide their illicit activities and their devilish machinations. It's because they know it's wrong. Obviously, they don't want to get caught. But in an, in there, in that, in an image marred by the fall into sin, nevertheless, their conscience, uh, their consciences are aware of the law of God written upon their hearts. So the law of God in, well, let's just, we're just speaking, going back then to creation and to Adam and Eve prior to the fall, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it. So that's, it's two things. Oh, I didn't say the second way in which the law of God is written upon the heart. So creatively, the law of God is written upon the heart and then redemptively. You remember that um, uh, uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 in the announcement, the promise of the new covenant that God will write his law upon their hearts. Uh, so that is a secondary writing of the law upon the heart in the new creation. That is, by virtue of amazing grace, God calling us from darkness to life, to light, uh, he writes the law upon our hearts redemptively so that we will uh, do those things in cheerful obedience to the God who has brought us forth by his grace. Um, and so, not only is the law of God written upon their hearts at creation, but also they're given power to fulfill it. And it elaborates a bit here. It doesn't get yet to the fall into sin, because that's chapter 6. But, and yet, under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. Um, we know this by the account of the fall, that man was subject to, to change in the garden because he fell. Um, so to, uh, you know, to uh, a little bit of a spoiler alert before we get to chapter 6, but you know the story anyway. They were, had the law written upon their hearts, they had power to fulfill it, and yet um, under a possibility of transgressing. So man's distinction from and dignity relative to creation. Uh, this is Augustine on the image of God, helpful language to, to sort of uh, capture the idea of what the image of God is. God then made man in his own image, for, created, for he created for him a soul endowed with reason and intelligence, so that he might excel all the creatures of earth, air, and sea, which were not so gifted. And when he had formed the man out of the dust of the earth, and had willed that his soul should be such as I have said, whether he had already made it, and now by breathing imparted it to man, or rather made it by breathing, 
so that the breath which God made by breathing, for what else is to breathe than to make breath, is the soul. So that distinction that we have from the creatures is, um, is noted well here by the, by the confessionalists. And this comports with the idea of creation manifesting the glory of God peculiarly in the redemption of man who was created in man's image, which image was marred and um, man fell and uh, Christ comes in due time to redeem him. So uh, man and creation, we also have thirdly under man and creation, we've already noted the law of God. Um, By virtue of creation, and we're going to note a distinction here in a moment, by virtue of creation, man has the law of God written upon his heart. But we'll note here in a moment, by virtue of creation, man was not in covenant. Um, Covenant comes by revelation. So fourthly and lastly, man, man creation and covenant. In paragraph three, we move to now something setting up the covenantal frame of the confession. Besides the law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which whilst they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. So we have here now the covenant of works declared in the chapter of creation. So we want to note here, man is not in covenant by virtue of creation. Man is in covenant by virtue of, uh, we would want to say, um, condescension. Revelatory condescension might be the proper phrase. In fact, in chapter 7, notice the beginning of chapter 7, paragraph 1. We're noting here that man is not created in covenant. He is created for covenant. But by virtue of creation, he's not in covenant. This comes by subsequent revelation and condescension by God. Uh, Chapter 7, paragraph 1. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life by some, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to ex to God, by virtue of them being creature, he being creator. But there's something, by, just by virtue of creation, their obedience to God doesn't allow for the attainment of the reward of life. That's why the confession goes on to say, yet they could never have attained the reward of life, but by some voluntar- voluntary condescension on God's part. And what is that voluntary condescension on God's part? He hath been pleased to express that by way of covenant. So going back, to, going back to of creation, we would want to note that the law of God is written upon the heart of man by creation, but covenantal obedience um, is, of course, not established by virtue of creation, but rather that comes um, afterwards. Besides the law written in their hearts, they received a command. Again, revelatory condescension, voluntary condescension on God's part, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, So this is the distinction as we move along in the confession, a distinction between moral law and positive law, or natural law and positive law. There are those things that we have as commands by virtue of the nature of God, and then those things that are super added or added, which are positive laws, which don't necessarily uh, mean... That uh, like another example of a positive law is the Lord's or or another example of a positive positive law maybe would be uh, better pointed at the uh, ceremonial laws, Uh, the eating of a you know the eating of uh, bacon uh, or ham um, isn't somehow because bacon and ham are intrinsically evil, Um, murder the taking of a life is intrinsically evil. But the eating of a pig is not intrinsically evil. It just has to do with a temporary command of God uh, whereby God commands, um, God commands positive obedience to a thing for a particular time in order to communicate a particular purpose. So we have a distinction here between law and covenant, and we have a distinction between natural or moral law and positive law. They received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When we get to chapter 6, we'll note 
there, the fall of Adam and Eve, and, um, and then more to do with the, those precepts that are positive in nature. And then notice, lastly, communion with God, which, whilst they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. So there's something very important here, among other things, that the confession is setting up. This pre-fall communion with God, we get to the fall, and that communion with God is severed and lost, and we get to redemption after chapter 6, and that's where that communion with God is restored in and by the second Adam, Jesus Christ. So we have this communion with God in this pre-fall reality. The fall comes, man is thrusted into sin and depravity, and then the second Adam comes in order to restore us unto communion with God. In the garden, it's lost. In Christ, it's regained. And this sets up the rest of the story. Essentially here, when we get to... Uh, we'll have providence in, in, in chapter 5, and then from, uh, from 6, that's where we have something of a larger transitional point from the fall to now redemption in Christ. And seven, seven through the end of uh, the confession really all has to do with the glory of Christ in the salvation of sinners. And maybe we can close with this, this particular point, getting back to the purpose of creation for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. When we look at the creation, when we consider creation, um, when we reflect even upon the complexity of ourselves, when we reflect upon our own humanity, when we reflect upon our own reasonable and immortal souls, when we consider creation, and we often should consider creation, uh, we all have eyes that, that work. You know, Maybe some that don't work as good uh, as others, but we all have eyes that work. We can cast our eyes upon the beauty of God's creation, and that's to draw us from those things visible to the One who is glorious in His invisibility, that is God Almighty. And we're to move beyond that to realize that the purpose of creation, finally and ultimately and specifically, is the redemption of the lost sons of Adam through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, in bringing many sons to glory by amazing and victorious grace. And so as we think upon creation, let's think upon those things. And as we go into worship here in 32 minutes, let's think upon our great God and the glory of His creative power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time studying Your truth. We pray that You would humble us before You. We pray that You would help us to a glory in You, our Creator. Uh, we pray that uh, uh, our reflections upon creation uh, would rise our hearts up to high thoughts of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray that You'd help us to go into this hour of worship thinking of You, worshiping You, dwelling upon Your eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Uh, any, any questions about anything covered here in this chapter? chapter of creation, anything... Maybe that uh, wasn't covered. Any questions on creation?